So welcome to the first Critics Roundtable of 2015. In the next hour, we're going to be discussing some of our favourite recent events, releases and producers. Maybe try and make some sense of what's happened in the year so far. So I'm Ryan Keeling, I'm the editor at RA, and I'm joined in Berlin today by a scrappy group, includes our associate editor Will Lynch. Hi Will. Hi. And our music tech editor, Jordan Rothlein. Hi, please forgive the nasal tones today. I have a little bit of a cold. You're doing fine, Jordan. Thank you. And uh, RA staff writer, Angus Finlayson. Hi. So uh, I thought we'd dive right in and each talk about a release that's caught our ear this year. Angus, you've gone for something that came out right at the end of last year, I believe. I think it's very early January, but um, we're splitting hairs really. Okay, yeah, we are, we are for sure. But uh, yeah, this is um, an album called Clouds by a group called the Gaussian Curve. The label is Music From Memory, which is an Amsterdam-based label. It's affiliated with uh, the record shop Red Light Records. And it's a second-hand shop, and the label has, to date, mostly reissued these kind of very niche, forgotten, ambient-leading records, or collected music from these kind of forgotten figures from past decades. One of these, I think the best release they've done was by an Italian composer called Gigi Massin, who makes this kind of very slick, quite poppy, almost kind of Balearic ambient music. And it's been interesting recently to see how these older artists, when they're kind of rediscovered, then go on to kind of have a second career almost. Um, I mean, Charles Cohen's a good example of this, his relationship with Morphine Records. But Gigi Massin is one of these people he's now kind of like around again. Um, Yeah. Do you feel like there is a particular appetite at the moment for reissues of this nature? I think so. Although, I mean, you know, in the, just the massive kind of all-consuming wave of reissues that has engulfed every aspect of the kind of music scene over the last decade. You know, it's hard to say exactly if this is like a, a spike or not, but definitely in terms of like kind of meditative, idiosyncratic ambient music, um, there's been a lot of really high quality releases in that kind of area. But yeah, so Gigi Massin is is kind of back on the scene now. And uh, this Gaussian Curve album is is basically the the product of that. Um, it's a, a collaboration between him and a young Dutch producer called Young Marco and a musician called Johnny Nash from the band uh, Land of Light. And it just came from a, a weekend improvisation session, basically, that the Red Light Records guys kind of put together. And it's really simple, you know, Gigi Massin like starts with some nice chords and then the others like do a bit of guitar, maybe some synths, maybe some quiet beats over the top but it's just a really it's sort of incredibly nice considered ambient record and as with a lot of Gigi Massin stuff it's it's very direct where you know a tradition in ambient music of being quite vague and kind of circumspect which is fine too but I really like this stuff that kind of like delivers the goods it just is very direct in what it's trying to do. I wanted to just go back for a quick second. I mean, with Gigi Mason, you say he's kind of back on the scene. How on the scene was he ever? I mean, he's not an artist I was familiar with before Music from Memory came around. Yeah, I mean, I'm no huge expert in his um, background, but as far as I know, his he was basically ignored the first time around. You know, he self-released most, if not all, of his records to like zero acclaim. And I think he's kind of continued to do stuff in the interim. Like a lot of these artists, you know, it's not like they only operated in the 80s, say, and then stopped completely. You know, musicians are musicians and they keep making stuff. But now that there's this kind of new audience who've discovered them and they've been placed in a context where people can get where they're coming from, you know, they maybe start to be booked for a few festivals and they get new opportunities with labels and so on. Following on from that, Jordan, uh, you want to tell us about your pick? Yeah, I chose... Um a record by a guy called, um, well, it's a compilation of, of music by and sort of related to this guy, Soichi Tarada, called Sounds from the Far East. Came out on Rush Hour, another Amsterdam label that does a really fantastic job of reissues. I have to say, this is without a doubt my favorite release of the year so far. I mean, it's definitely the one that I've gotten the most mileage out of in terms of just listening to it all the time. And yeah, it's it's a collection of tracks from a label called Far East Recording that was releasing music in sort of the 
uh, I guess kind of the the critical period for the label was like the early 90s. It was run by a guy called Shinichiro Yokota, I want to say. Well done. Thank you. And uh, he has at least one cut. Yeah, he's got one cut on the compilation himself. Um, There's another cut that's a collaboration between uh, Tarada and a guy called uh, Manabu Nagayama. And um, (laughs) yeah, I'm just going to keep saying difficult to pronounce names just to sound impressive. The music has a lot in common with stuff that was coming out of the United States, like Larry Heard, producers from New Jersey and New York, like New Groove stuff. But it's definitely got its own thing. I'm reminded, you know, of the fact like, you know, if you go to Tokyo and you eat in an Italian restaurant, there's like the potential that it's like better than food you would eat in a lot of parts of Italy. Like there's just this this kind of search for perfection that seems to be like a part of how the Japanese like approach anything, you know, like how can we refine this thing? And this is like deep house. Well, some of it's not really all that deep, but um, like 90s house just kind of taken one step further I guess um, this guy Soichi Tarada was a um, he was like a computer science major, and he also did he also studied like the electric organ or something, and um, he actually like went on to do a lot of computer like like video game music. You can kind of hear this like nerdiness to the whole thing throughout the music, but um, it's so much fun. I mean, it's just it's an incredibly fresh compilation of tunes that you know you you couldn't get any other way. They're they're extremely expensive on Discogs. Some really lovely synthesis on this record. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fantastic. If it sounds cheesy at all, it's just because it's quite it's quite brash and and colorful. And I think a lot of people would want to sound a little bit tougher than he does. But it's yeah, it's 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 amazing stuff. If you, if you haven't gotten your hands on this record, you're like you're really missing out on some good times. I would say. And it's right that Huni had a hand in putting this together. Yeah, he was the um, I guess the sort of he compiled the compilation, sort of the executive producer on the whole thing. He probably has a lot of these records, sought them out back in the day, so to speak. And um, you can you can definitely see you can definitely hear what what he heard in these tracks, why he was so excited about them. Uh, Will, you've gone for a twelve-inch feel pick. Yeah, I chose Carmine by. Fit, aka Aaron Fit Siegel, who's this guy from Detroit that runs a label called Fit and a distribution service also called Fit. He's put out a few records so far. The reason I like this is I just think it's a really kind of timeless, beautiful song. Um, it's the kind of thing that I find myself reaching for just really often on a day to day basis. It pretty much always hits the spot. And I read an interview with him where he basically kind of explained this sort of approach that he and other guys from Detroit take to music, which is like, it's sort of a subtle but fundamental difference, which is that when they're making records, they're thinking of it purely as they want to make music that just exists for itself. Uh, It has nothing to do with, it's not a component to a larger career or they're not trying to vie for bookings or anything like that. And um, that's kind of borne out by the fact that, you know, Fit and many of his peers don't play or tour that much. They really are, it would seem, just making music to um, to please themselves and their listeners. And he had this line that was something like, I just want to hear timeless music. And I know not everything can be a classic, but you have to at least try to find something like an idea or a thought or, or emotion that's totally original and, and completely um, unique to you otherwise kind of what's the point of of trying to do this and um yeah i guess when i hear this track it's just like first of all it has a sort of just naturally attention grabbing quality it's one that people always ask what it is um it's just kind of a dreamy melodic techno track but it doesn't sound particularly contemporary or old school it has a, a very timeless quality yeah it's, it's one just that just for reasons you can't quite put your finger on, just ends up being very evocative and uh, mm. doesn't get old. That's definitely a word I'd use to describe it. You think it's one of those tracks that could like slowly gain momentum and end up like being one of people's favorite records of the year? I'll be surprised if it's not my favorite. And um, I mean, it's funny with these things, like it's been reviewed on RA, it's been reviewed on other sites, but how much broad traction does something like this ever really get? 
so yeah, we'll see what happens. But for sure, I think um, in the realm of DJs playing house and techno, I feel like this will be an enduring sleeper hit for sure. Okay, so um, I've gone for Jalen Stark Energy on Planet Moo. It's a label I think has had a fairly strong start to the year. It's actually a record that took me a while to get around to listening to. I'd kind of dipped in and found it a little bit overwhelming or overbearing to listen to in all but like exactly the right circumstances. But um, I think for me, the thing that stands out about this is um, she's kind of putting a fresh perspective and it feels like she is a fresh voice in footwork. It's like a a famously male-dominated scene out of Chicago. Her point of view on this and her take on this and her production style related to this template just to be seems to be coming from a completely different place. Her music is tends to be more kind of like drums and synthesis driven, where footwork producers are usually using famous pop and hip hop tracks to kind of like reimagine, recontextualize this stuff. But she's kind of a guest part of a wave that goes back a few years where um people would be writing footwork related music for situations that weren't dance battles. So I guess if you think about the, the arc of the genre, everything that was written in the first 10 years of, of footwork was maybe with a, uh, like a dance in mind, but she seems to be part of a, a kind of wave of producers or like a, a different way of thinking where you're kind of writing with this template and at this tempo, but not with this specific context in mind. Yeah. I remember listening to the record after the review went up on RA, I, I hadn't heard it before that. And, you know, I saw that the genre was listed as footwork, but I was like, did I load in the wrong files? Like this doesn't, this doesn't sound like any footwork I've heard. I might not have called it footwork if I was just grabbing this randomly, you know, in a shop. Probably should have gone for post footwork. <laughs> that might've been nice. Largely speaking, you, you know, the repetition is still there. I'm, I'm sure that it could be interpreted in, in the same way by dancers, but there seems to be just like more of a freeform quality. And, you know, if you're, if you're largely basing things around like hooks, like footwork traditionally does, like a one bar sample or something, you tend to know within the first like 10, 20 seconds of a release or of a track, like where that's going. But her music tends to move through like, different stages and passages and it will kind of like turn on a diamond like do something different or go in a different place but I think really the one of the surprising things was how much like emotion and like energy she was able to convey using this tempo it's just not a genre that you would necessarily kind of associate with conveying these kind of like very profound feelings of like anger and sadness and melancholy like Angus you were talking a little bit in the review about like a maybe like a repressed sexual energy or something yeah I mean interestingly after the review was published I had a a couple of people say that they couldn't hear that in the record at all but to me this kind of very aggressive intense surface what captivated me about this is the fact that it feels like there's these kind of underlying forces that are that are powering it and uh, she's said in this interview she did for facts she's talked about how she's channeling these negative emotions and it's kind of interesting to hear footwork discussed in those terms because most often it's discussed as you know a collective effort centered around dance battling or centered around crews of producers and uh, in the way that you might talk about lots of kind of collectively uh, powered dance music scenes you know you're talking about the sharing of ideas and the way in which the functional necessity of of dancing and dance floors shapes the music. But here's someone talking very specifically about, you know, her feelings and how she might express those in the music. So I thought that was interesting. I mean, I think in a way this is sort of the classic evolution you see musical styles take where there's the first thing often tied to a certain time and place and with some very strict traditions in place. And then someone maybe somewhere else gets inspired by that but they're not as beholden to sort of the the decided on way of doing it and so like for instance the idea of a footwork artist talking about these sort of complex sad emotions as opposed to you know weed and xanax and things like that um it's a bit like say post-punk and indie rock bands talking about 
feelings of vulnerability in, in, instead of just, you know, anger and whatnot. Um, mm. it's, I know. think is, um, you know, the, the record does come with a level of depth in that there are topics she seems to be exploring. Like it was something you picked up on the use of female voices in the record. There's some quite haunting like passages, like dialogues between like male and female voices. I think it's the, there's the man at one point that says, you don't want to hurt anyone. And she says, I do, but I'm sorry. And kind of screaming. Yeah. And then the, the music's quite grisly after that point. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, you know, I wouldn't want to put words in her mouth. I don't know the extent to which she really is trying to convey these messages or if, if they can simply be read into the music. But that was also something I found particularly engaging and interesting about the record is that it seemed to contain these kind of depths. You know, you could drill quite deep into it and kind of put these interpretations onto it if you so wished. Okay, so next up, uh, we're going to discuss some of our favourite events so far 2015. Angus, I was going to come to you first. You uh, you spent a weekend at Pontins recently. I did, at the Bangface Weekender. Bangface is a London-based club night that's been going for, I'm not sure, at least half a decade. And uh, it was quite formative for me when I first started getting into dance music in London um, in the sort of mid to late 2000s. Um, and they, I guess their mission statement most broadly put is to kind of revive or maintain the spirit of early rave music, if not the, the musical style. I mean, there are old school rave acts, um, but there are also, there's also a lot of like jungle and breakcore. When I used to go in sort of 2008, nine, there was a lot of dubstep and things related to dubstep. And it's, there's always kind of a smorgasbord of music, but it's all kind of tied together by the fact that there's just like inflatables being thrown onto the dance floor and huge smiley faces everywhere and everyone's quite messy and uh, it's that kind of atmosphere. So I'd, I'd not been to a bang face for quite a few years so this was kind of a partly like a nostalgia trip to go back and do this thing that I used to do quite regularly. One of the parts of the weekend that particularly stood out to me um, was this run of artists in the second room which was ISIL Tech and then Box Cutter and then DJ Distance. And these are three artists that I saw quite a few times and followed quite closely in around about 2008 and at the time was sort of quite important for me. And I've since kind of, I guess our, our musical worldviews have diverged, so it was kind of nice to check back in on them and see what they're doing. Box Cutter and ISIL Tech, both Planet Mew artists who kind of gained uh, an audience from doing these kind of left field sort of electronica informed takes on dubstep when dubstep was just expanding beyond its kind of core crew uh, its core scene and distance obviously was, was a more of a core dubstep dj who back then in sort of 2008 and still now is kind of pushing this more muscular kind of aggressive side of the sound to someone like mala for instance these days isotech and box cutter um they've kind of sped up their tempos quite a lot and uh, are doing things with the footwork template and things like this. Distance is still very much doing what he does and has always done. I mean, he, I think, was playing new music. He also played a lot of classics. He played Koki's Spongebob. Um, he played Lofa's remix of I by Scream. Uh, these kind of very dark tracks which kind of laid the groundwork for wobble dubstep as it then transformed with with artists like Skrillex and became this huge phenomenon in the US. Do you feel like a little bit of your enthusiasm for what was going on is it simply like you haven't been hearing music in the classic dubstep format for for a few years? Absolutely I mean this was partly why the experience was so interesting to me is that in the past when I've had the opportunity to see or have seen artists from that kind of era again I've kind of been resistant to the idea of indulging that slightly nostalgic urge. You know, it felt too soon. You know, I, I felt kind of like, really, this was only like three years ago or something like that. You know, 
am I ready to sort of come back to dubstep and enjoy it on this purely nostalgic level? But it seems like it's been long enough now that I really could just kind of like enjoy it in that way. The, the kind of dopamine rush of like hearing a track that you haven't heard on a sound system and maybe haven't heard or thought about at all for several years. And I guess for me, this is this is one of the first times I've had a kind of a, a genuinely nostalgic club experience like that. So it was interesting to experience firsthand the power of that and to understand a little bit why these kind of back to 92, back to 98, whatever movements in dance music are so powerful. What about the weekend as a whole? It was good. I mean, it's incredibly friendly, first of all. I maintain that the sound production, this wasn't so much the case at the festival, I think three or two and a half years ago, but in generally at their weekend as the, the sound is as good as any UK festival that I've been to, you know, it's incredibly loud and punchy. So yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, Will, you wanted to discuss uh, Sophie, who you uh, caught finally at um, CTM earlier in the year. Uh, yeah, that's right. First of all, in a way, I'm pretty reluctant to talk about Sophie, or I sort of don't want to talk about Sophie, just because at this point, I'm pretty tired of the controversy surrounding these artists. But at the same time, I guess I would be lying if I chose anything else, you know, asked about what was my most notable performance of the year so far. It just was Sophie by, I don't know, a fairly wide margin, just in the sense that um, he played live. And it was the kind of thing where just afterwards, I mean, the people I was with were really buzzing. It kind of not just refreshed, but sort of just dramatically enhanced my appreciation of Sophie and um, the whole PC music uh, camp. I guess the main thing is, in a way, this performance really undermined all the criticisms I've heard of Sophie, um, mainly in the sense that it wasn't ironic or conceptual or anything like that. Like, in a very straightforward way, he was just kind of rocking the house. Like, I f it reminded me of being a teenager at a rock show or something, where it's, it's like down near the front and getting pushed forward, pushed into the barrier and um, everyone reacting enormously to the songs that they knew and sort of like a collective almost anxiety about like whether or not he would finish with the Hey Cutie in the sense that like everyone's just praying he would. Um, and then sort of more in more specific about the performance itself, um, he did some really nice things like when you see an electronic artist play live, there's sort of this you never know how much material that you recognize is going to make it into the set. It obviously works a bit differently from seeing a band where, you know, they play songs everybody knows. And he kind of intentionally or not toyed with that in an interesting way where you would hear an alternate version of one of the songs you're expecting to hear, like Lemonade, Hey Cutie. They both sort of first came out in these strange uh, other versions. I guess you would assume that like, this is it like this this is how he's going to play lemonade a few minutes later there'd be like a far more satisfying true to the original delivery of one of those songs and so it was kind of like a bait and switch that would um just make everybody kind of go nuts he also just had a cool stage presence i mean there was there was absolutely no embellishment to the show whatsoever it's just him on a dark smoky stage but there was an element of um sort of subtle showmanship that I appreciated. And in general, I just like, I guess it, it might be something that sort of used to be part of my life and isn't now. I like going to see someone perform and it's sort of the classic format of a musical performance where everyone's watching them. They play the songs that you like by them and there's sort of like a, you know, tension and release over the course of the hour. But mostly it was, I mean, sort of like all you need to know is the whole room is just going off like this isn't I mean it was actually sort of like an industry music critic uh, event in the sense that it was CTM which is an experimental festival but in this particular moment I felt like I was just surrounded by people in their early 20s that were drunk and just kind of going bonkers there was no sort of cerebral element to it whatsoever it was just loads of fun basically uh Jordan your favorite night of the year? I guess it was a month ago, six weeks ago now. I went to Ohm, which is the little 
sort of club performance space that's attached to Trezor and saw DJ Sotofet and DJ Fettberger sort of playing all night. They've been doing these parties there sort of on a handful of occasions for the last few years when it was um, Ohm and then it was Shift before that. And they did them in Loftus Hall, which was another sort of similarly sized one room club. But their their whole thing is they they always keep the admission fee quite low for Berlin, like five euros. They, you know, put a little flyer together for the thing that is, you know, very sex tags in the in the artwork for this particular one. Uh, they said on the flyer, like, no train spotting. Like, uh, I'm you know, just looking at the flyer now, actually. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, they do the, like, dub jungle trip in. Like, there's always this, like, long chain of genre titles of what they're going to play. And, and, and that's usually true. Yeah, that, that was exactly the way the night went down. I mean, I think the, the first part of the evening was my favorite part. I showed up relatively early, and there was very little beat. It was sort of psychedelic music, dub music all kind of just played together in this like very interesting string of tunes. You know, I I really like this time in the club where it still just sort of feels like you're at a bar. There weren't that many people on the dance floor. Most people were, you know, at the bar ordering drinks, saying hi to their friends, listening to like really groovy music. But then as the place gets more full and the way that this club is shaped, there's sort of the bar occupies half of it and the dance floor occupies the other half. And the bar started to fill up to the extent that people kind of couldn't help but go out onto the dance floor and sort of join the couple of people who were tripping out on there already. It was like kind of just at the right moment, the beat sort of started to speed up and everybody was everybody was on the floor just kind of started to move. And before you know it, you're in like a full-on kind of house techno DJ performance. And uh, it's, it's, it's a real dance party, but... You know, so many nights, especially in Berlin, you get a lot of nights where I guess London is kind of the same, too. It's like this jigsaw puzzle, like, you know, how are we going to get, Okay, we need this headliner. These guys can sort of help warm up to get to that place where the headliner is. Maybe we give this one guy the opening set. We have this one guy do the final set when it's just the last couple of people over the course of the night. But with Sotafet and and Fettberger, you know, kind of taking over the whole night, you, you really get this musical vision that runs runs a gamut of jo- of genres, but also really just the mood is is quite um, you sort of get one mood throughout the whole thing, kind of drawn on a bunch of different moods, if that makes sense. And yeah, it, it, it just felt like a really, really special party and um, more than anything else, like kind of a shared experience between everybody who was there. Do you feel like Om as a venue is maybe like among Berlin's best? Like what's the programming there like on a monthly basis? It tends to be quite underground artists, I would say. Uh, Definitely a lot of like kind of local crews coming in there. Occasionally you'll get like a bigger show. I think when the club opened, DJ Stingray did a party there, which was completely ripping. It was pretty cool. And I just think it's a great place. I think it's a really cool room. I think the sound has gotten pretty good there much better than when it was shift and i like going to parties there it's it's funny you know you have to walk past the trezor queue to kind of get there like i think that the trezor not not to sound like an elitist but it, it kind of acts as like a little bit of like a fly trap and like if like if you're going all the way to to ohm you kind of have to know that like you're going there like you wouldn't just walk into it. You wouldn't just walk in off the street. And I think it creates a really nice crowd of people who who all want to be there, want to listen to really cool music. And I think it shows in the, the quality of the parties that I go to there. For my pick, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about my experience with uh, Fortet and Skrillex earlier in the year, well, sort of around the Easter time. Those who read my review probably tell that I had a like absolutely killer night, and I think it was like the most read review we had on the site. It was definitely the most uh, commented upon. I think like having uh, had a bit of time to reflect on it, like one of the key things for me was it's kind of like what you were saying, Will, with Sophie, like this idea of it being uh, somehow personally revitalizing. So um, I think with so many of the performances that I would go out and see, there's this idea of like a slowly unfurling kind of like pressure and like pleasure release, which is great. You know, this is something that you kind of get towards and more you like move through music and your taste maybe become more refined if you want to put it in those terms. But I think sometimes what's best for the soul is 
just going out and hearing 50 bangers like back to back and just sweating profusely. But the whole night had this like very sort of once in a lifetime feeling to it. I mean, I think it was personally quite kind of like ballsy of Fortet to do it. I know that sounds like ridiculous in some respects, but like his reputation, his neck was kind of on the line. And I think there was a chance that it could have gone horribly wrong. But um, Cummings, it did like the last day of Easter weekend, which is like famously messy in the UK. The fact that it was in Camden, which is really not a destination for anybody in dance music anymore. And the fact that it was in like this kind of quite gnarly rock venue, which had this like pub complex feel. I think it goes over two floors as well. And you have to kind of descend right to the back of the venue in order to like access it. But it's one of those um, situations where as a glasses wearer like me, you just fog immediately and kind of like slip over a little bit on the floor. Do you have any more of a sense of of like why they did it? I mean, yeah, it does seem like Fortet would be putting a lot on the line to do this. I mean, was it just because they could? Is there is there no reason to ask that question? I mean, I don't know. It it strikes. I think they struck up a friendship through Twitter as much as you can do. But as I mentioned in the review, they actually only met face to face earlier in the day, playing some tracks together, and um, you know, seeing how it all fit. But I just get the sense that Fortet kind of enjoys those kind of left turns and those sort of going around um, established industry models somehow, like the way he kind of plays the press game and the way that he releases his music, like. He tends to just announce things through his Twitter or his Facebook or something. So I think that idea of like gently fucking with people is something that like he really gets off on. But he did have this like slightly nervous look about him and he definitely relaxed as it was going on. But um, Skrillex? Uh, no, Forte. Oh, okay. No, no, Skrillex was like super aggressive, like just, yeah, composure the, the entire night. I think one of the things that I sort of found out from this night, because, you know, I, I see Fortep DJ quite regularly and I think his range is like evidently fantastic. But one of the nice things was his kind of taste in like very obvious, like banger anthemic music is very similar to mine. So it'd be kind of like very sort of speed garagey and very like baseline driven. And um, like the jungle tracks that he played would like definitely be among my like all time favorites. I think as well, one of the things I came away with, like Skrillex's music, I've kind of long said in like small doses, I can definitely appreciate like the sonic achievements of it. But one of the things I maybe hadn't seen before is just the the effect that it can have on people and how that differs to the sort of music that we're used to. I mean, he comes from kind of like a, I guess like metal background or something. It felt to me like some of the reactions that you would have at like a, a more raucous concert, like in that area of music like I saw people freaking out in a way that you would never ever get somewhere like Bergheim you know like throwing themselves around you know like if a fight had have broken out or like a, you know a serious mosh pit or something you wouldn't have been surprised another interesting thing was like the reaction to the review itself it was eye-opening to me that people were maybe seeing it as like um, somehow an affront on underground culture or something and there was like a, a very kind of um, knickers in a twist kind of feeling I mean, I wish I'd uh, received the payments that people were proposing that I had received. But um, there was one guy who came, kind of came in amongst it and sort of said something like, um, come on, the underground is an under siege, like lightened up, you know, which like really summed it up for me, I think. Okay, so we're going to finish up by talking about a producer who has impressed us so far this year, Angus Klaus. Tell us about him. Yeah, Klaus is, as far as I know, based in London. He's a British producer. In my mind, I kind of file him alongside a whole load of very, quite nerdy, very unshowy, young British 
producers who uh, kind of had their formative experiences in, in dubstep and then went on to do very singular things coming out of that. So you're talking about James Blake, etc. Well, I mean, so Klaus is part of James Blake's 1-800-Dinosaur crew. And it's interesting that this, this completely non-showy, non-careerist kind of attitude has actually proved to be a really successful formula. So James Blake is a bona fide pop star now. The Hessel Audio crew, who I would also kind of group with these people, uh, you know, are enormously successful. They're basically an institution at this point. Klaus hasn't had that level of success at all. He's an incredibly low-key figure. Um, he had one record on RNS, I think, in 2011. Since then, he's self-released everything through his own Tanum or Tanum label. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And he's just put out one 12-inch a year. And that's just been him, basically. Maybe the odd remix. And it's really interesting to kind of go back and listen through these each of these records and observe how he's kind of progressed from this quite introspective kind of indie-ish take on Garage and Dubstep, which we would associate with artists like James Blake and with perhaps with some of the artists affiliated with Hessel Audio early on, and has just gone kind of deeper and deeper into this incredibly singular world. So his record for this year, which came out perhaps a couple of months ago, it's hard to say what it is at this point, but it's probably a kind of ambient music or a kind of really sort of moody, gloomy mm. dub. Um, I was reminded of the Biosphere, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, to me, very satisfying to see this this guy kind of completely under his own steam and relatively undisturbed by success and fame to just kind of pursue this artistic agenda and just see where it takes him. And where do you think it will take him? Well, I'd love to see where he's, if he can take it further. But, you know, who knows? I mean... At a rate of one record a year, you know, where he's going, he's going there quite slowly. So it's for vinyl only through his own label. Yeah, yeah. Jordan, you wanted to talk about uh, Kita Sano, a Japanese producer. I think he's been impressing a few of us. Yeah, this is a guy who's only been putting out music for like a couple of years. He's pretty young and from Okayama, little city in Japan, I think. Well, definitely Japan. I don't know if it's a little city or not. But, uh, He's incredibly prolific. Uh, one of his first records came out on Mr. Saturday Night um, called People Are Changing. And um, I remember talking to, to Justin about this producer, and he said that he had first started getting demos from Kitasano after apparently the producer found the record Mad Disrespect, the, the Anthony Naples record, the first one on Mr. Saturday Night in a record store, and just really liked it and was like, oh, well, I'll just start sending these guys like all of my music. Justin said he's gotten probably at least like 100 demos from this guy over the last, I don't know, year or two. And, you know, they're, they're completely all over the shop. Some of the stuff sounds like house music. Some of it's jungle. Some of it's quite heavy. Some of it is um, really, really out there. But there's definitely like a like a sound signature there, you know, if he's a producer who's still kind of figuring out exactly what kind of music he wants to make, or even if he wants to make a particular kind of music, he just has this ear for particular types of, of sounds. And I don't think very many other producers that I can think of really hear, really hear music this way or want to make music that sounds like this. He's definitely got an ear for samples. There's lots of, um, lots of sounds on all of his records that sound like, you know, he heard, he heard something on another record and said, okay, I'm going to make an entire track around this. And some of them are really like quite weird. There's a track I was listening to this morning on a SoundCloud called When the Circle Be Unbroken. And by the way, his SoundCloud is like just, he puts up like a track every couple of days or something. It's it's fun to follow. And it's like the vocal hook that he went with, the vocal hook in, in quotes is like, just sounds like guys moaning and then he's processed it, like really kind of over-processed it to the point that it just sounds like nothing in particular just this kind of like like smear of sound or something and uh it wouldn't strike me as being very musical i wouldn't have thought to build an entire track around this but he did it and, it and it's great he just had an album come out this week called holding new cards on 1080p and the album is a complete mess it's all over the place some of the tracks feel like they're really they could use some editing but it's it's so much fun to listen to and and he's obviously just like a real talent. 
Yeah, I think um, what impressed me is like if I think about the first track I've heard of his that people are changing on Mr. Saturday Night, I like that for a completely different set of reasons to why I liked the one that came out on Row Records or yeah. R.A.W. Records. Yeah. So this first one is kind of like an extremely gritty, maybe kind of like in the spirit of lies type of thing that has a, kind of along the lines you were talking about, this is awful smeared noise across like the soundscape. And then the new stuff is just like incredibly pretty and like well-produced and sort of like very breakbeaty and summery in places. Yeah, but sort of whatever he's doing, he seems to want to put as much on the track as possible, you know, uh, whether that's just this, you know, kind of weird, like blur of noise or whether it's just like tons and tons and tons of color, you know, I I think he'll he'll probably, as he continues to produce, he'll sound more and more like, I don't know, professional or like, you know, like he's got his act together. I, but I hope that he doesn't too much because that's like kind of the best part of listening to his stuff. Will, you went for tapes. Um, There's not an artist I know too much about at this point. You want to fill us in? At this point, I guess part of what makes tapes interesting to me is that I know a decent amount about him, but he is just kind of an elusive artist. Basically, I first, I think I first heard him on, he did a record on Sex Tags Amphibia a year or two ago. That was him and a bunch of that crew, but it's kind of hard to say what exactly his mark on that record was. Um, But then this year, he had a track on Workshop 21, which is the A2. Um, This is kind of warped strange pop song called somebody's baby it's just like it sounds kind of muffled it has kind of a fever dream quality to it also there's this thing that keeps happening where it sounds like it's being played on tape and the tape occasionally slows down momentarily so it just has a sort of queasy lurching motion anyway it's the sort of thing that even though the other tracks on that record are kind of what djs would play and this at first sort of feels like little funny one also thrown in there for me it ended up being by far my favorite track on the record and i know other people feel the same way one of my friends told me it's by far his favorite track of the year and all that for kind of like a two and a half minute fuzzy little ditty you know kind of in the style of ariel pink or something like that anyway and then i guess at this point of uh, a couple weeks ago he put out a record on honest johns with the um collective Warika Hill Sounds, which is like a dub reggae collective and, um, called Datura Mystic. And um, yeah, again, on this one, I can't tell what he actually did. He's, he's credited as the producer. But when I bought that record, someone recommended to me this older tapes record called Where Is The Time? This one is just like really, really weird and killer. It's on this label called Jatari, like jaw and atari um which describes itself as specializing in uh digital laptop reggae um which is exactly what this record is it's just like on the one hand sort of classic reggae tropes like the flutes and bass lines and there's you know kind of a dance holly vocal on one of them but at the same time just like so modern and strange um you'd kind of have to hear it to really appreciate this sort of odd marriage of like on the one hand uh, classic reggae and dub on the other hand just like really fucked up and weird um, new stuff anyway I'm, I'm basically just based on what I know from this guy so far I'm just intrigued to see what the next thing will be he's playing at this uh, wax treatment or doing a festival but unfortunately I won't be in town but again like the idea of seeing him perform it's like absolutely no idea what that would be like I have no clue what style of music you play how the performance would work anyway so yeah I guess uh almost just out of sort of mysteriousness alone or not mysteriousness, but sort of um, just how unpredictable he is. But then also, I mean, I shouldn't emphasize that too much because also these tunes are absolutely killer. Somebody's Baby and the one on Jatari, especially just really uh, strange, addictive music. Again, one of the tracks of the year for you at least. Yes. um, Fit and this tapes track, certainly my top five of the year. Sure. I've gone for DJ Maboku, who's kind of associated with the whole Lisbon thing that's been kind of popping off. If people read the uh, piece I wrote last year, I spent a bit of time over in the city and um, have since revisited. And uh, it's kind of like one of my favorite things to talk about over the last couple of years. But I think the main reason I wanted to highlight Maboku is that 
I think with scenes such as Lisbon and these like sort of transportation of ideas and like stars and stuff, I think it be, can be a little bit too easy to like focus on a couple of the guys. It's just like, you know, the takeaway name. So for Lisbon, like Mar Fox is like by far and away like the most recognizable name, but then like Nigger Fox is kind of like also getting a lot of bookings around Europe. But I think Mabaku is someone who, who I can definitely see like making a jump to like other clubs throughout Europe. I think there's something about his sound that's very compatible. You wouldn't necessarily play it in house and techno sets, but there's something in the spirit of those sounds that I think will make sense to people who enjoy like those styles of music in a club. It's like naturally extremely percussive, but there's something. Um, so when I'm listening to some of the other Lisbon stuff, like particularly like the Tarashina related stuff, it has this kind of circular motion. I'm kind of imagining circles going off in my mind, but with his stuff and particularly when you see him DJ, you're thinking of like straight lines, like forward propulsion. So his kind of notable release this year, like Prince finally kind of, I wouldn't say got their act together, but um, they had a few problems like getting out the 12 inches. Like I think last year when I visited in February, they had like eight ready to go and it took a further year for them to get music out. But they've had a flurry of activity and there's been like three killer 12 inches that have come out over the last last few months. But um, there was the split he did as part of CDM, which is thing with uh, Lillocock. So they kind of take what seems to be pretty fluid roles in like the production team. So some of the tracks are credited to Mabaku, some are credited to Lillocock, some are kind of uh, joint collaborations, it seems. But there's one particular track, I think it's the one that opens it, but like... I guess the takeaway would be like the French kiss style moaning in it, but it has this just like really eerie kind of like lurching, uneasy sound that runs through it. Again, it's kind of going in this Tarashina style or Tarex, I think is like the way they usually talk about it, which in relation to the stuff that Mar Fox plays, for example, it's kind of like much more slower. It's much more slower and you have this feeling of like... um like to watch people dancing to it, it's much more of a kind of like low and grinding motion where like Mar Fox is more up and out and kind of like fall to the floor. The reason I wanted to like highlight Mabaku also is because um, like Lilo Cox is definitely like making as interesting music, but Mabaku's like DJ sets I've seen have just been like absolutely killer. I think he has a kind of aura about him or like a stage presence about him that you would associate like you know with our favorite djs i think i've seen him about four times now so it was like the birthday party that i kind of covered for this piece but he played also at the barbican as part of the just jam thing which actually was kind of a bad gig for him it was like um they were doing a mixture of like live performances and dj sets and the live stuff made like way more sense. I mean, they're performing on a stage, whereas the DJs were kind of like off to one side on the green screens. So if anybody saw that gig, I wouldn't like necessarily take that as the last word on him. But when I went over a couple of months ago, it just seemed like at this point in time, like a new star was kind of like being created. He was on a pretty stacked lineup, but like his set was definitely my favorite of the night. And he has this kind of like, very, int I don't know if you've like seen, if anybody's seen pictures of him, he has this like crazy hairstyle, which is like almost completely shaved, but then with like long dreadlocks at the back. But the, yeah, there's a general um, like intensity and in the way he kind of like sets himself and his whole posture while he's playing. But I think the way that uh, he arced the set was very interesting. So he went in super hard, like the first kind of 30 minutes or something and really like took people by the scruff of the neck but then kind of like slowly dissolved things and made it like a little bit more accessible i actually went on to uh looks which is like the other one of the other famous clubs so they do the prince parties at a place called music box which is i suppose like a live music venue ordinarily but i went on to looks which is like a really really impressive club omar s was headlining it's like sort of very elegant european style like evidently a lot of money's been spent on it but like the kind of like difference in atmosphere and just like the way that the whole like presentation made me felt was like night and day like i'm a big fan of omar s but um like to compare what was going on at that party and what was kind of going on with his set was just like night and day or something and i think for anybody who like finds himself in Lisbon when are these one of these parties are going on they should like absolutely check it out it's probably one of the best things that's going on in Europe I think